all I wanted for me was to come home. I think they just wanted to make sure their brother came back in one piece. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If anyone to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody to boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Very, very the soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. And so he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line. Today is my conversation with Mark Wales. Mark is a former Special Forces soldier, a veteran of the Special Air Service Regiment, the SAS. Mark, thanks for coming on Life on the Line. Good evening. How are you? Not bad. Yourself? Yeah, good. Good to be in Sydney. Good to have you here. Where did you grow up, Mark? Uh, so I grew up in the Pilbara. Originally, I was born in Newman. It's a mining town way up north, and my old man was a truck driver up there, so we were born kind of in a, in a mining town. I had two brothers and uh, the whole family, so I grew up with plenty of red dirt in my ears and eventually moved south to Perth. Are you the eldest? No, middle child, two brothers, one older, one younger. Besides a lot of dirt around the ears outdoors, how else was your childhood? Mate, we were pretty fortunate. We had spent a lot of time on coastal cities, so Geraldton, Perth was another. Basically everything you'd want in a childhood, I had a pretty stable family, so I was lucky. Uh, I know a lot of people who didn't. So to grow up with a fully intact family, um, to be able to see them a lot, to have plenty of time outdoors as a kid, like that, they're good things, so I was lucky. Were you sporty as a child? I actually wasn't that sporty. It wasn't until I got a bit older, like becoming a teenager and realised I wanted to go to the military that I started doing more sport because I knew I'd, I'd need it. Were you academically inclined at all or just mucking around in the dirt? Wasn't that academically inclined, but I loved reading. So I was always curious as a kid about how things worked. I actually loved science and applied for kind of biotech when I was in uh, in year 12. So it got better as I went along. And then when I realized I was serious about the army, I realized I had to actually buckle down and get decent grades. Otherwise, I wouldn't be going into the military in the position I wanted. So, so what inspires this initial interest in the army? For me... Looking back, it's pretty clear, although I didn't know it at the time, it's clear now looking back that I had an interest in that type of world. And I think it was between being outdoors, you know, firing Shanghais all day at my mates and playing armies and, you know, watching comic book novels and action heroes and all that, all that carry on. I wanted to be part of that world. And I think when I was in about grade nine, I saw a photograph of the Iranian embassy siege in 1980 in London. And it's a fairly iconic image because it has all these soldiers clad in black waiting to enter the embassy to rescue all these hostages that were in there and they had gas masks and submachine guns and it all looked very dangerous and exciting and, and like they were doing a good thing and so for me that was a point i realized that is the world i would love to go into and you make it there yeah a long time later so it was 1993 when i saw that and decided i wanted to go to the military and it took 11 years from that point to when i walked on to the selection course for sas so it took a took a long time but got there in the end Let's talk about your early joining of the military before you get to SAS. Yeah, it was funny. My parents dropped me off at the army depot in Perth. I remember I'm looking a bit worried, but um, I was excited. You know, I was off to the military. I was only 17. 
and we flew over to Canberra, landed, and it all went to the Defence Academy where we started on our first day. And this was kind of, this is 1997, so it was just before all the allegations of improper conduct with in regards to kind of bastardisation and bullying came through. So we were still getting the kind of third-year cadets in charge of us, and they were giving us the old treatment. So as soon as we arrived, I remember being shown how to make my bed. And then from that point on, we were kind of drilled every day, shouted out. We got kind of six weeks of kind of that break-in abuse you get. And then by the end of that six weeks, we had our Chief of Defence Force Parade and all marched on in with our new uniforms and our parents came over and visited. And um, that was kind of the start of, of our career. And it, it was exciting. We were only kids. So were you one of the last of the old school, therefore? Oh, definitely. That was the last hard year at Adfa. <laughs> 1997. No, it was. It got a lot better, I think, after that. They started realizing they needed some adult supervision because they seriously didn't have it. It was like Lord of the Flies up there. It was you and a bunch of teenagers in your block and you're trying to take care of yourself. So uh, I think that very old school way of bringing people into the military gradually died off. And I think it's in much better shape than it's ever been. Did you have a specific endpoint in mind with this? Because you've joined the army, we've been undertaking peacekeeping operations with United Nations forces and that kind of thing, but we've not been at war since the 70s and we've only semi-recently come out of that long peace period. You're potentially facing a career of peacekeeping deployments or stationed at home or things like that. Is that still exciting to you or you just aren't thinking about the bigger picture too much yet? You're a soldier with a gun and it's all the cool toys. I thought the timing was good actually because we had been as a country entrenched in peace for a really long time. Like the last major conflict room was Vietnam, as you pointed out. Since then, we'd had some minor kind of UN deployments to Africa and, and Asia and whatnot. But I remember thinking there's actually nothing going on, but it's going to take me a long time to go through all the machinations of training, becoming an infantry soldier and potentially joining special ops. So I thought the timing was actually pretty good. So you went for the infantry specifically for special ops. That was always the goal from once you saw that picture of the British SAS. Yep. Everything I did leading up to joining the military was kind of a stepping stone to get to that point. And I just kept thinking, oh, what's going to be the best thing that will help me understand what it's like to be a soldier or to be a better soldier? And for me, that was, you know, try and join as an officer if you can, just because it's a challenging job intellectually. Try and go to infantry. It's a ground-based soldiering. involves a lot of thinking, a lot of planning, and a lot of understanding your craft as an infantryman. And then finally, I guess, having that experience under your belt before you go into selection makes you a slightly more mature person. And we were lucky because we had, by the time we joined infantry, all of a sudden, East Timor was well and truly a, a, a big commitment for Australia. And me and a lot of my graduating mates were lucky enough to serve there as soon as we left our training academies. And that was a, a huge privilege and we were lucky to get that introduction to operations even though you know in some cases it wasn't an introduction it was full-on battles for some people for us it was definitely a strong introduction to operations tell me more about your time in timor when do you go there what are you doing over there yeah so our first deployment to timor was late 2001 september 11 had just happened we left to go there in october of that year of 2001 and i was with two rr so the second battalion and a job was going to be to go to one of the higher provinces and basically secure the population that was there. We kind of didn't know what we were doing exactly. We were going to have a presence there, but we were very new to this. We had no real idea how to run a peacekeeping mission. We did some training that lead up to it, but the main thing was going to be get involved with the population, make sure they're secure, make sure there's no interference or um, killing from any external forces, including the militia. And 
that's what it was, it was a protected population. And in the second half of that tour, we went to Junction Point Alpha, which is on the border of West Timor, so Indonesia. And when we were there, we had to repatriate thousands of returnees. They'd been in refugee camps or displaced person camps in West Timor for 18 months since the first crisis broke out in 1999. And when they were coming back for Easter, back in East Timor, my platoon was at that point and we had to kind of provide security for them as they were coming through. And they were in horrible shape. There were whole families of people that had just been living in squalor for a really long time and they were in terrible shape. So it was actually the first time I'd seen human suffering at that kind of level. It wasn't it wasn't pleasant at all, but it was good to be helping them get back home. So it was good. How old were you when you were exposed to that? Uh, I was 22. I was 22, yeah. And what are the age of some of the more senior officers you're serving with? I imagine some would have seen time in some of those UN peacekeeping deployments like Rwanda or Somalia. Or They were a bit of a rarity. There were a handful of them in our battalion and they were considered to be experienced guys and our battalion had been to Rwanda. We had not deployed to Somalia, that was one area, but they were kind of scattered throughout the unit and they were considered to be really experienced soldiers because they were really the only jobs going on at that point. There was actually one guy, a captain who was with us, Tillman, who had been in Rwanda and had been awarded a medal for gallantry there. And he was in our unit as well and he told stories of the Kabao massacre and um, what that was like. It sounded like a big shock to Australian forces involved in that, in that particular peacekeeping mission. So it's not just you finding your feet and warming up into this. You're finding your feet, in a sense, with the rest of your unit. Yeah, with the rest of our unit. And what was good about it is the commanding officer of 2R at the time was Angus Campbell, who's now chief of the army. So he was a really, really good commander. He was, I think, Cambridge-educated philosophy, SAS troop commander and squadron commander. He was a really capable commander. Bit of an eccentric kind of guy, but really really good at his job and and a lovely person and obviously went on to do huge things later so we had really great leadership my platoon sergeant was a real cracker he was really good his name was sergeant daryl egan um, and together we were there for seven months and it was just a great way to kind of understand what it's like to live in remote countries trying to do a job with military kind of uh, objectives it was it was tough you also would have had some other thoughts going in the back of your mind i suspect because as you said you got there just after 9-11, you can see the landscape of the world is changing. And as defense forces, you're probably thinking, oh, our role's going to change. We're going to be activated in some capacity here beyond, you know, just the shores of Timor. Yeah, I remember watching that unfold when we are in East Timor and just seeing how much fighting was going on by the end of 2001 in Afghanistan. And you couldn't help coming to that conclusion that things had really changed. No one was talking about that region. No one was, no one was talking about Al-Qaeda before this had happened. It was a huge pivot for the entire world. We were in East Timor, but we knew about the Australian forces that were getting committed to Afghanistan. So it was interesting hearing, seeing all that unfold. And I had studied history and politics at ad for and loved it and, and to watch now a historical event unfold was pretty was pretty uh, exciting and unnerving at the same time tell me about your time in the solomon islands i was in two rar still it was my third year there and we had it was a bit of a surprise deployment that kind of came out of nowhere and the way i understood at the time is we were going over to support again the un mission there and also to help disarm some of the militias that were fighting in that area to uh, basically again secure the population and that was 
a great job for us because we were pioneers at that time. I was in the assault pioneer platoon. So we had a small fleet of rigid hull or inflatable boats, Zodiacs. So we were able to to cut around these islands quite well. And we, we had a good old time driving these different islands and helping provide security and inserting people and moving police around. And it was a really cool job. So when does the opportunity for you to finally undertake SAS selection present itself? So I'd been waiting to do it for some time and knew that within a couple of years of being a, a lieutenant or a platoon commander in the battalions, you could apply to join the SAS and do the selection course. I was lucky because at that point I'd had two deployments and good experience basically as, a, as an infantry soldier. And I applied to go on the selection course in 2004. And my mother had died the year before, so it was a real, it spurred me on quite a bit. I was like, I, I, time is kind of running out. She'd had cancer. So the thought of missing kind of my life's goals because I delayed or deferred was enough to kind of kick me into action. So I went and attended the pre-selection training that was there. That was reasonably tricky, but I think it, it only took a day or so doing all the activities for that and then walked onto the selection course after doing a few months training uh, in, I think it was late 2004 and um, off we went it was three weeks of of torture i think torture might be an understatement the sas training whether it's in australia or the uk it's are you tough enough it's legendary can you talk us through some of the stuff they put you through yeah i think the things i remember most and there's a lot of there's a lot of things you remember well and there's some that are probably repressed memories because they were that they were that tricky completely uh, blacked out (laughs) exactly but the things i remember quite well there's obviously an endurance phase where you are walking for an extended period of time by yourself and there's a lot of uncertainty you don't know exactly where you're going you've just got a a basically a grid point you're trying to get to it's about 12 k's away and you're you don't know how much distance you're gonna you've got to cover over the day by day by day you're getting no feedback and you're completely isolated so for me when i started that i actually had injuries in both my legs and i could feel myself degrading each day as i went through these different checkpoints so it was really it was hard to stay mentally focused when I was in that much pain and you've got to navigate yourself. You've got to kind of hold your nerve when you're on your own because if you do start to self-defeat mentally, then it's a really slippery slope. It's, it's hard to pull out of that spiral. And that was, I think, when I look back at that whole experience, the one thing I didn't know about the place, I kind of guessed, but I, I didn't know, is that it is largely about mental acumen and mindset it's about what are you willing to put yourself through and when you're doing it can you still lead can you still solve problems can you still be agile enough to deal with problems when you've had no sleep when you haven't eaten for a long time when you're exhausted tired and you've got a team of of guys you're working with that is like 80 percent of it it's a large component of it at least when i went through um, which was quite a while ago now i'm sure it's still something similar the physical part is really just a threshold you're expected to meet it's you've got to be physically capable you, there's a series of tests you need to pass and that's kind of it you need to be physically capable and the rest is kind of mindset it's really a level playing field a few days into it and it's then a case of how much do you want it how hard are you willing to push and that's what's great about the unit because then you've got these people that you know will continue to push no matter what the kind of conditions are builds that intimate sense of trust because it's not always the biggest guy that's going to make it through that training or that selection. No, it's not. 
And actually, I had a lot of people giving me that helpful advice before I started. Like, there's a lot of endurance in there. You're not, you're too big for this type of thing. And size is not really, you know, people's physical frame is not really an issue. It's kind of more, have they prepared themselves? Are they willing to continue to, to push and to problem solve and to lead no matter what the conditions are? It's as simply as I can put it. It's really not that much more advanced. You're a big tall guy. Are you sort of the average build or you, were you a bit of an outlier in your group? Um, I think when I was there, I was probably on the, the heavier end of the spectrum. We had all shapes and sizes. There were some really compact guys there all the way through, some really tall, big dudes. So, yeah, I was constantly surprised by the, the different sizes people came in. One of my close mates looked like he was about 11 when he started selection. And um, when I saw him on the bus, I thought, oh, he, he's got no chance. But sure enough, he was there at the end. So it takes all types. Tell me about that first plane trip to the Middle East. Uh, I think my first trip to the Middle East was to do basically some security reconnaissance, basically to, to help guide people, uh, whether it was visiting politicians or generals through the Middle East. I remember flying over, not having any idea of what this would look like, but when we landed in Kuwait, I remember seeing all the bunkers, the huge aircraft bunkers that were probably, I don't know, 15 metres high that had these craters blown through them by American bombs from Gulf War One. And I remember seeing that and just thinking, God, that was you know, a long time ago now. What's it all look like now? And then uh, by the time we kind of flew into the other two countries we were visiting, which is Iraq and Afghanistan, it was they were completely different cultural worlds and physical worlds to what we see in the West. You could tell they were ancient. You could tell they were, in some respects, biblical. If you're talking about Afghanistan, it's it's got a really underdeveloped infrastructure steeped in history steeped too. in history and you don't coming out of that place i've got a lot more respect for that culture and that part of the world than i ever did going there because the west is fairly junior in terms of, yeah, as a civilization we're not that old really these civilizations that came out of those parts of the world endured for a long time over the course of your special forces career how many deployments do you do to the middle east four tours to afghanistan and I did a few other, I did one to Iraq, one to Lebanon, and then a few other smaller ones, which were those short duration visits. So yeah, it was quite a few. We were continually going back and forth. We just didn't have the people to, to man the jobs. Let's talk about your first full deployment to Afghanistan. Can you talk me through your first patrol? Yeah, first patrol, we went in and got shown around by another team that was already in place. They said, this is the area. Uh, we're going to take you out. We're going to show you around. Is this in Tarankout? Or? This is in... Yeah, this is in Orisgan province in Tarankout. And the areas we went to were reasonably secure. There weren't, there weren't any recent kind of Taliban sightings or contacts in those areas. So it was a good chance to see the ground, to see the people. And I remember seeing the stark difference between the kind of the dashed, which is that desert that surrounds the valleys in Afghanistan and uh, the mountainous regions of the place. And then all that green kind of lushness through the valleys, which is all the agricultural land where they've fertilized and watered and kept that going for probably thousands of years. And I knew they were both dramatically different pieces of terrain. And more often than not, the Taliban were in that green or they'd have spiders on the high ground around us. So it was interesting to see the terrain, just how restrictive it was. It was pretty stark, pretty beautiful, but pretty inhospitable as well. If you're going out for a longer period of time as well, you're going to be facing some extreme temperature swings. It's not a forgiving or accessible country in that sense. No, it's it's elevated, it's inland, so you get those real swings where in the middle of the day, I mean, temperatures hitting 58, 60 degrees in the shade. That wasn't common, but it would be hot. It would be really hot. And then at night, you're getting uh, 
really cool temperatures because you're in a desert basically so you can drop right down when you get into winter you're getting well and truly into the into the minuses so uncomfortable terrain but at least it's dry most of the time that was good before we get into any specific stories what's like the size of a patrol we varied the size of our teams quite a bit like we we couldn't repeat our patterns too much so we'd always change uh, the size of the unit we deployed with the numbers the vehicles we took out the areas we'd go to how we'd get in there we, we changed that up quite a lot so there was really no standard size but often what you get is is an sas element or like a fighting element we called it so it could be anywhere from kind of three to six teams of guys so it could be a, a large kind of team or something smaller one of the traditional roles of the unit is kind of reconnaissance so when we got there in 2007, there had been a lot of reconnaissance work that had happened throughout 2005, 2006. So we were starting to get a better idea of where the Taliban were. And all of a sudden, there was less of a need for that type of work. There was more of a need for confrontation of the fighting elements, the Taliban fighting elements that were in, in these valleys. So although we were really well trained at that, we weren't always doing just a reconnaissance role. It kind of varied quite a lot and became far more aggressive as the campaign went on. So you're really changing up your, because as you said, the SAS historically comes from a tradition of quiet scouting observation, looking back to Vietnam, the phantoms of the jungle. And now you're just having to fulfill the mission needs of command because you're special forces. You've got the skill set to get in there, in and out surgically quickly, regardless whether it's observation or a more contact base operation. Yeah, at that point, that was definitely the case. We had the ability to, to infiltrate long range into enemy territory kind of undetected um so that's always a really good skill to have that's something i think australia is we hold as a distinctive capability we've got so much experience in jungle warfare from world war ii korea and vietnam that it's been an enduring kind of skill set for the australian and that is that reconnaissance skill a lot of coalition forces kind of don't have the patience for it to be honest because it takes a lot of, it's a lot of hard work it involves a lot of really good field craft and it's not the sexiest job on earth it's much cooler to be in there kicking doors in and fighting so it's a great skill to have and it really informs um, a lot of other capabilities you're going to use later but it's it's hard work so we were doing it sometimes but it's it's the role started to change quite a bit when i arrived it was starting to become more a fighting role tell me about one of the times you were kicking doors in I think the first job we were given that was going to involve something like a very likely contact or combat situation was the requirement to clear the Trura Valley, which had been cleared the year prior in 2006 in the Battle of Trura. And in 2007, it had been kind of reclaimed, reoccupied by the Taliban. And by late 2007, RC South, the, the commander of the South, said, that's it, we want it back. And it was creating a lot of issues for us because it was a sanctuary. So out of that area, they could train, they could make IDs, they could do kind of what they wanted because they had control of that area. And our kind of responsibility here was going to be to help take it back. And we were going to form some of the kind of leading advance element of this force that was going to come in and clear it. And we had basically a Gurkha battalion uh, that was going to do the clearance for us. And they were worried about uh, heavy weapons that might shoot down in their aircraft on approach, right? So one of our roles was going to be firstly to find out what's in there, how many enemy are there, what do they have? And secondly, facilitate the actual clearance. So um, receive forces on the ground, help them move to their clearance points, and then do our own strike operations on the flank to that. So that was actually a fairly traditional kind of role, uh, reconnaissance role. But it was great because it involved... By night, these teams going right into enemy lines, setting up 
places where they could listen to the enemy or see the enemy. And it really, after a while, started to inform a picture of what was in there. So by day and by night, we could kind of see or hear what was going on in that valley. And we knew probably two things. One was there was quite a few Taliban in there. We estimated from memory, I think 80 to 100. We also knew there was some preparation going on by them. They were building positions in there for a fight. So they kind of knew this was coming. We're eventually going to come and clear that valley. And so when the operation started, we went right out into the field to receive these Gurkhas and to start the battle. And that was scheduled to happen about 3 a.m., um, and then we we're going to move to a fighting position. As it happened, there were some delays that started to drag out a bit. We weren't in position by daylight. We were going to have to do some movement in daylight. And as it turns out, we picked up to go to this particular location. We were going to put in an ambush effectively. And during this move, we walked past a cornfield, right? It was this kind of maybe chest-high cornfield of dead stalks. And I remember looking at it and thinking that was quite unusual because the rest of that terrain had all been very neatly kind of raked and soiled. It was all agricultural land, so there was nothing like that around, so I thought that was weird. And at the same time, someone saw a, a woman walking away with two kids, and the same instant, someone saw a guy in black walking away from the back of that kind of cornfield. And if you see that type of thing in quick succession, my kind of underdeveloped combat mind I didn't really know exactly what that was but i didn't think it was good um in hindsight that's like the best combat indicator you can get that something's about to happen what had happened was we walked past a cornfield that had taliban fighters kind of embedded all through it and there were positions nearby and they opened up on us when we were quite close we weren't that far away and so in that battle one of our guys was shot and killed badly wounded at the start of the battle um sergeant matthew Locke, and he was known as an outstanding soldier. He'd won a medal for gallantry in that same valley the year before. So he kind of knew that area. He kind of knew that it was definitely a hotspot. So that was a, a shock for us. We had to kind of change our mission a little bit. It's already hard enough as it is when you're trying to fight. And then all of a sudden, um, it was us trying to help Matt. And it became hard quickly because all of a sudden you're faced with, now you can't move as much. You've got the additional kind of stress of having someone badly wounded it was it was a lot to take in quickly and it was a the first contact of that day and that kind of sparked contacts through that whole kind of valley so it was definitely a tough introduction for me i was only a fairly new guy and it was a very steep learning curve and to lose someone as good as him was a shock and uh he's still well remembered and well regarded he's a he was a huge role model for me and for a lot of guys did that shock loss impact you much at the time or did that sink in more later on? No, not at the time. It's it's funny how good everyone was at just concentrating on what needed to be done kind of there and then. You, there was really no time for anything else. So I remember thinking, well, actually, later on, we'll probably have to deal with that. But kind of right now, we've got far more pressing issues so by issues you mean bullets oh yeah exactly all, all that stuff's like how are we now gonna try and change the situation that we're in how are we going to try and get some initiative back and with a bit of time and application and kind of discipline movement and fire like we we're able to get that back and no one else was was injured at that point but <clears throat> that was uh it was a definitely a tough day at the end of that day or the next day did you look at the situation and sort of pinch yourself a bit looking back at that black and white picture of the British SAS. Now you are Australian SAS and you are in one of the most historic and 
bloodiest landscapes in the world fighting for your country and being shot at and losing guys close to you in your unit did it feel like you were fulfilling the dream or you'd moved on to some more surreal experience i think it's like that the proverbial kind of frog in boiling water you've taken a long series of steps over a long period of time that's put you in that situation at that point it kind of didn't just happen overnight so for me it had been a progression over years and years and years so it wasn't to me surprising to be there and involved in that i kind of that had been the goal that had been by design to be in that unit um, and to be overseas was by design i didn't want to be in something like that that i couldn't control and the outcomes weren't as great for us as i wanted i didn't want that of course but getting to that unit and being in that situation was it was definitely a goal i'd aim for so it, was, it felt good to be a part of a team as good as that did you ever find yourself in a contact in a village or somewhere where there were local population around that were not combatants yeah that happened quite a bit so towards the end of some of these deployments generally what we'd see is Taliban leaders would not just go off by themselves in a log cabin on the side of a hill and just wait to be taken out by coalition forces. They would live amongst the population because that's where all the support was. It just made a lot of sense. So And human shields. Kind of, yeah. So it just made sense to work to hide in plain sight among those people. So more often than not, if we landed in populated areas, and keep in mind these are rural areas, so anything heavily populated is often not that dense, Generally, what happened is civilians would hide themselves. They would know that there was coalition in the area and a chance of fighting. So more often than not, people would hide themselves. As SAS, did you ever cooperate with the regular army or commandos or you stuck to yourselves? Yeah, we had a huge affinity for regular army units because we all remember coming from those units, whether it was armoured or infantry units or you know some guys even came from the Navy. But anyone that was out in the field in Afghanistan, those bases, we kind of felt this strong affinity to them we wanted to take care of them and there's good stories about guys going out to these bases and taking the guys food or talking tactics with them or showing them stuff and i think they appreciated that and we loved helping out in that sense we didn't cooperate in the time that i was here we we loosely cooperated with commandos on some areas and in trying to achieve effects you know i was going i think we were actually a lot better at working coordination than we get credit for, at least in the deployments I saw. I thought we worked quite well. I think in stories in the media and that, you, you hear about the friction between the, the two units. I don't think it's as bad as what they say. I think we got along well, and I have a lot of mates that went to commandos as well, and they were really, really effective in Afghanistan. You're both elite. It's just good to have a healthy, competitive rivalry to push yeah, each other. exactly. Place. For the long time, for a long time, we're the only show in town. So admittedly, when another fighting unit comes into SOCOM, you're gonna, there's going to be frictions, but I think it was good. What would you do for downtime over there? There was always a daily gym ritual. Guys would get in the gym each day. Um, there was plenty of that. Other than that, you'd hang out in the barracks sometimes, chew the fat. The, we had common areas, recreational areas where we'd all, all hang out. It was actually pretty social. So if you weren't working, training, cleaning gear or, you know, coming out of the gym, you were hanging out with your mates. Are there any lighter moments from your time in the Middle East that stand out to you? Any funny incidents? Yeah, there's a couple of funny things that often happen back at base. One was we had this chaplain that used to walk around base. He was a funny guy. Of course, he used to wear a cricketing hat, a broad brim white cricketing hat. And I don't think anyone in the entire Middle East wore a hat like that. But he wore it and he looked kind of different and distinctive. And uh, the guys, of course, took it upon themselves to take his hat to steal it one day and take it out of the range and put a few bullet holes through it. So <laughs> after they'd done that, 
they put it back in his office on his desk and, and then they saw him later that afternoon walking around with this shredded hat and uh, he just quietly went up to the guys and goes, look, whoever did this, I'm a boxer. Let's uh, let's get in the ring and we'll, we'll duke it out. The chaplain said The chaplain said that, this old guy. And, Game on. And, and to his credit, the... Uh, he stepped up against a, a trooper that had done it and they had a, formed a ring. They had a short boxing match and punched each other out for a bit and then uh, there was over. So it was, it was a pretty funny little little event. Was that declared a draw? <laughs> I think the trooper lost, the chaplain beat him. <laughs> yeah. Did you notice a change in the atmosphere or the lives of the local population over time as you kept going back and forth between the country? I didn't notice that much of a change because... To be honest, we weren't that well embedded in the population, so it was hard to tell. But there was a graveyard kind of at the front of the base in Tarrant and I noticed that year on year that would continue to grow. They got bigger and bigger and bigger, and you can only kind of assume that was from the fighting that had been going on in Afghanistan for, for years by that point. My last tour was in 2010, and it had been going on for you know a decade by then, at least from the coalition and before that, Northern Alliance and Taliban before that, Soviets. So, yeah, a lot of fighting there. Well, by that point in 2010, when you're seeing that accumulation and you can't personally tangibly identify results, do you feel all this effort, is it worth it? Is it leading to anything? Yeah, the issue for me was seeing there was very little we could do about Pakistan and the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And as long as we didn't control that border, our efforts in a strategic sense probably wouldn't move the needle that much because long term, it would revert to back to type like if the government wasn't fully legitimate if the security forces of the government were not that effective and we couldn't control bordering countries or sanctuaries then there was a chance that all our effort militarily was not going to produce results so i kind of started to see that after i think the american surge 2009 roughly and reading some of the publications around how the decision making was done at a political level i started to realize that they were not as committed to the campaign necessarily as the military leaders were. So where there's divergence, and if there is, there should be with civilian oversight, they should obviously have that right to stop the campaign if that's what the country determines. I could see that's where it was headed. I thought, whatever we're getting told militarily, what actually matters is how the decisions are being made at the political level, and it didn't look good. How did your experiences in Iraq and Lebanon differ from your time in Afghanistan? Uh, for me, they weren't combat-focused. They were far more support operations. So the combat work is obviously very hard, very challenging in any circumstance. The other, the support roles are equally challenging in a lot of different ways, in planning and kind of execution as well. So even though they were very different roles, they were just as tough sometimes and just as exciting. So they were, they were good. What about back home for you? You've got your father, you've got your brothers... Do you have any major relationships going on while you're deployed to Afghanistan? And if so, how does not just overseas deployments, but the more covert nature of what you're doing impact on that interpersonal relationship? What happened was we'd start going back and forth out of that theatre so much that that became basically our workplace in our life. When you came back to Australia, it was kind of a holding area. It's where you'd pay bills, have an Australian breakfast and a coffee and get ready to go back. 
So for me, I was always impatient to go back into theatre because that's where you felt the real life and the real world was. So it was this weird kind of inversion where all of a sudden you didn't believe that Western society was the real world. We kind of built this huge facade of institutions and and all this around kind of the West, whereas in the Middle East, you had a much clearer representation of what humans would be like. I think, and and that's, it's not a healthy way to look at at, um, at life, I think. And so after years and years of doing it and finally coming home and calming down a bit, you realize that it's, it's not, it's not the real world. You mentally never left while you were... You don't. You're always mentally in that place. So my father and my brothers, all they wanted for me was to come home. They just they didn't mind. I think that I didn't speak to them a lot when I was away and when I came home. I think they just wanted to make sure their brother came back in one piece. So they were pretty good like that. I had a girlfriend at the time a couple of times and, I mean, they come third. You got your job first, you got your teammates next and then they come kind of third. So it's hard to explain and it's you're under no illusions. It's hard to hold a relationship together like that anytime. And that's why I chose never to kind of have a family or get married during that period because I, I knew it wouldn't last. Well, by 2010, you've got all these internal factors building in that, is this the life I want? I can't establish a family while I'm here, which is the real world. And then in 2010, you move on from that to Duntroon. Can you explain a bit more how that works, what you're going to Duntroon to do and why you move on there? So eventually you get a good external posting like that. And I just had a close mate of mine go through Duntroon as a lead instructor. And he said to me, look, it's it's a great job. It's a rewarding career. I didn't want to go back. I'm not the biggest fan of Canberra in the world, but I took the job as a senior instructor at the military college of Duntroon. And to be honest, I loved it. It was really rewarding to help young motivated people grow into officers. And I remember going through it myself and all you wanted was for someone with some experience to tell you how to like be better as an officer because you don't know what you're going into. And so for me, I just tried to create really good exercises, spend time with them where I could and just share those stories. And I actually really loved it. And if you get a detox from the Middle East, might as well be Canberra. Exactly. And detox we needed, we were pretty fried after years and years and years of deployment. So it was a good chance to take care of myself. What prompts you then to get out in 2012? On my last deployment to Afghanistan, I started looking at business schools in America. I'd always wanted to go to the US, something about their kind of approach to everything I really loved. So I'd looked at business schools in the US. I'd looked at Columbia and Harvard and Stanford and started like building my application to go there because I thought if I'm going to jump out of the military, it's got to be something really good. So I started applying to these business schools, but I had to pass a standardized test. It's called the GMAT test. And it's kind of a four hour test that goes through your kind of English and mathematical skills. And it's pretty hard. I hadn't used that part of my brain for a long time. So I had to study and study and study to try and rebuild it and do these practice tests. And it took me four attempts over four months before I finally got the score that I needed to apply to these top business schools because you just couldn't get in if you didn't have a high enough kind of score. So it took me ages and it was probably one of the harder things I've done because I just didn't know what I was getting into. And then with that score, I applied to the Wharton School of Business in Philadelphia and was able to get in there. And that was a two-year full-time program. So I was able to leave the military and go through this institution with, there are a thousand kids in my class, there are a thousand kids in the class above, so it's a big school. I was learning new things and there was kind of no limit to what you can do after. It's really, it was really cool. After the structure and rigidity of the army, what was it like to join a corporation and enter a new, completely different world? 
Yeah, so I joined McKinsey and Company, which I, which is a strategy and managing management consulting firm um, after business school, and worked there for about two or three years, and that was a very painful introduction to the corporate world. They are, they are an amazing company. They do really, really good things. But the experience of joining a company where different skills are required, it's a different culture, it's a different approach, and all of a sudden, all your old skills aren't quite as useful as they used to be, that was really hard. But as time went by and I got a bit more proficient at the basics of kind of business and analytics and language, all of a sudden, you're able to use those other skills, which were so useful in the military. So all the discipline and leadership and interpersonal skills, they became really useful. So a tough introduction. It was a really great company, but finally, I think the learning you get from that is is really valuable and you find out what the military skills were too. And you take that and you open a fashion label, Kill Capture. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, From SAS. To- yeah, yeah. And I remember putting the first kind of the photo shoot we did of the first jackets and I remember like cringing on, I'm going to get a lot of a lot of sledging for this, but we went, went ahead in it. Yeah, exactly. So of all the things I've done in my life, that was probably the least comfortable. And so I started that label up thinking how good it would be to merge special ops design with high-end fashion. But there's no camo patterns. There's no camo, no patterns, nothing like that. It's kind of a it's kind of a hybrid. It's got only design references to special ops uniforms, which is what I love about it. But I'd come to really love fashion when I was in the military. I got told by a girlfriend once that I had terrible dress sense. So of course I had to go out and try and change it and uh, got involved in fashion. And when I was at business school, came up with this concept, tested it, built a prototype in New York City and wore in the fashion show at school and people loved it. And I've just chipped away at that kind of part-time over the last couple of years and, and trying to grow it. And if anyone listening recognizes your voice or your name, it's because I also have recognized you from the Australian TV show Survivor. Yeah. So you're taking your elite survival yeah. skills from, you know, the Middle East and East Timor and applying it to the camera filled island. Can you tell me a bit more about Survivor? Yeah. So I was in New York in the middle of winter getting snowed on. And one of my mates was talking about this show, Survivor, that he'd seen in America and everyone's heard of it. You know, it's a great show. And I thought, God, I'd love to do that because it, you know, makes sense. I've been from that world and you done should, Survivor. You should do right and, at it. Exactly. Yeah. You'd think so, right? So I saw Australia. We had a show. They'd run a season last year and they were doing a new one for 2017. So I applied and I kind of thought, well, like I might not get it. That's fine. If I do get it, at least I'll, I can take my jacket on and I can wear that in the show. Great publicity. So yep. there you go. Free, free marketing, plenty of eyeballs on the jacket and that's not to detract from the game it's actually a great game and there are legions of fans around the world that'll be probably mortified by that comment because they're survivor diehards but the chance to take my own jacket on there and basically just to see just have a crack at that world i thought i might as well try it because um you never know how how far i can go well mark your sas the creme de la creme of our military why didn't you win? Exactly. Um, <laughs> and I didn't tell anyone I was either, so I should have should have protected me even more. But um, I think, well, I know the reason I was targeted was because I was in a close partnership with Samantha, who in our tribe, they spotted and said, we're breaking that up. So they knocked Samantha out first, and then they uh, knocked me out after they realized I was going to I was gonna come from. They attacked the power couple. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Rookie mistake. <laughs> You've kept an involvement though in the veteran space as well as pursuing these other ventures with the younger heroes yeah the younger heroes is a a really good non-profit it's only very new it's about reconnecting veteran parents with their children 
the founder, Damien Schofield, was the son of a Vietnam veteran. His father had a hard time with all the post-deployment mental health issues that come from that world. Um, and he decided he never wanted a kid to go through what he went through, like a failing family, basically. So he started this concept where we take out a veteran parent and their child into the wilderness for three days. And we basically take the technology off them and we do a whole heap of survival activities, fun activities, and just spend time together, basically. Um, we do workshops and a, and a whole bunch of things. And it's a really rare chance for the child to understand what the parent's been through and for the parent to understand what the child is going through as well. So what happens is they go away from these camps with a much better understanding of each other. And although we're not claiming to fix everything in one hit, it is a really good step in the right direction for these families because often having deployed for years and years and years, they can be disjointed families. So it's a great idea. Uh, it's very new. We're still looking for corporate sponsorships. So it's been a great journey. It's good to be a part of, of that. Well, providing a support network in that absolutely critical transition phase, which I want to talk about with you because you stepped out of the military, adjusted superbly well, and you're pursuing a range of ventures, and that is fantastic. But there are, of course, a number of people that don't adjust well, and that might be because they've got combat-related stress or even just the more understandable that they've trained and trained and trained and put their heart and soul into this lifestyle. They have developed so much skills. They've done the equivalent of climbing the corporate ladder, whether it's in speciality or rank or whatnot. And then when they come back to Civvy Street for whatever reason, all that suddenly translates to, you know, it's the currency uh, translation doesn't work. It has such little meaning in some regards. Have you seen friends or other guys you've been with have a more difficult transition? Yeah, I think it's probably one of the most isolating experiences you can go through to walk away from that world where you have all your mates, you have a great sense of purpose and a job that you're good at. To walk away from that and to go into a field or another industry where people aren't really aware, they don't really know what you've been through. To be frank, often they don't care what you've been through. That can be hard to try and carry in. It's hard to care about a job that you, you know is not gonna have as much meaning as the military. I kind of took it upon myself to search and give myself as many opportunities as I could, and it still wasn't easy. It's still not easy, even if you go through those institutions where you can be retrained, go into a corporate job where you get experience. It's still hard. It's still a difficult thing to walk away from a career you love and go to a world where the values are different, the people are different, and you have to find new meaning. How can we as a society be doing better to take these military skills and you know leadership qualities and things like that and translate them into our western society yeah it's a it's a tough question and i know i don't expect you to solve it in one answer but i mean what you, you know someone who has made the adjustment so well i'm wondering what your take is what's into your mind the biggest deficiency in that transition period mm. or just finding a way to take that skill set and deploy it elsewhere obviously there's the mental outlook of yeah this doesn't feel as meaningful or fulfilling to me yeah. That is a separate problem and a big problem to adjust. But how do we get third parties to... Structurally, yeah. yeah. I think there's a kind of a top-down, a bottom-up way of tackling it. Top-down, we've got kind of the infrastructure and the government architecture like DVA, like these other organisations that will try and take on veterans for employment or education. And I think they're good initiatives and where I know they're constantly trying to grow those and make them more efficient and figure out how to have more impact right, in the life of a transitioning veteran. And then from the bottom-up perspective, I think you really have to empower veterans to be able to understand their worth because it takes a lot of time 
to figure out that the skills we have can't actually be taught very easily. They're actually things that you learn through experience and the military gives us a lot of responsibility, a lot of leadership skills from a really early age. And they're incredibly valuable to any organization. And it just takes a bit of time for you as a veteran to firstly understand it and secondly, to be able to communicate it, to communicate your value to another organization or group. That's probably the missing piece. And I think the Americans got a lot of this right with the GI Bill. They kind of, they give soldiers the time and space in educational institutions to figure out what they've just done and where they're going to go next. And the two years I had at Warden was probably the most important thing I've done because it's a chance to just reflect on what you've been up to and buy you a bit of breathing space to figure out where you want to go next, all the while you're building education skills and a network. So that's probably the one thing I think that would help quite a lot and we just don't have it yet. And Mark, if people want to look up your fashion label, where can they find it? Check it out at killcapture.com. Capture spelt with a K. Also look us up on Instagram. We're reasonably active on that too, so check us out. And what about The Younger Heroes? And The Younger Heroes you can find at theyoungerheroes.org. Sign up. We've got camps running all year, so if you're interested in joining one of these with a child of yours, please do uh, go speak to your local RSL for funding and we can get you on the camp. Well, Mark, I think your focus and foresight should be an inspiration for listeners. You go in knowing the career you want, you design how to get yourself there, and you get yourself there and you have the experiences you were dreaming about since you were a kid, essentially. And then you go and serve our country in the most elite capacity possible. You then move on from that and use the skills you've acquired over the years and create new opportunities for yourself. So thank you for your service. We are grateful. And good luck for your future endeavors. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And if uh, anyone's got any questions about it, reach out to me online, LinkedIn or at mark at killcapture.com. That was my conversation with Mark Wales, former SAS. If you like the episode, make sure you're subscribed. We have a veteran conversation out every Tuesday and bonus episodes on Fridays. Find out more about this podcast and the team behind it at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com and join in the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget, 